Friday lunchtime lectures at the Open Data Institute. Well, thank you for being here despite the uh, particularly inspiring weather today. Um, my name is Antonio Bizan, I'm an architect and I find myself belonging to that kind of odd crowd um, of construction industry people that really like to flirt with technology and innovation. Um, and the rest of our industry kind of look at us like, why are you doing this? You know, this is embarrassing. You know, stop being, try and being um, innovative. Uh, what I will try to do today, and I know time is kind of tight, is to share with you what I think, after a few years, might be the future of the construction industry um, in a few years down the line. Um, I will have three videos. Uh, the first one is an interview, not the entire thing, just a clip of an interview uh, we shot as part of G4C with Peter Hensford when he was uh, UK government chief advisor for the construction industry. And I thought um, him rather than me would be quite um, good um, sharing with us what he thinks the construction industry is. Um, and then I will report quickly on the work we've done with BRE and uh, ODI on uh, importing open data in the construction industry. Um, and then um, share some kind of future uh, thinking with you. So without further ado, I think I could do this and uh, let Peter um, tell us something. Well, we've got 140 trade bodies in this industry. Mm -hmm. What do you need 140 trade bodies for? Right. You try talking to them like I've had to in the last three years, and that's a nightmare. And every week you find a new one. But, you know, we all seem to... And yet, everybody's paying their subs to these trade bodies, so they must be adding some value. Why would well, there might be a perception that they're adding value. Well, yeah. I mean, you know, BIM um, has created the biggest wave of enthusiasm and pride regarding reducing fragmentation. In Does that many, work? In many it has, yeah. Um, yeah, it's working. But these, yeah. we're such a um, slow-moving industry mm -hmm. in terms of evolution. Is that because of the burden of our legacy? Ah. I don't know. Um, no, I think we're just um, risk averse. Right, right. Hugely risk averse. And yet, the margins in this industry, if you look at the margins of the tier one contractors in particular, just use those as an example, you know, they're pathetically small. They're, companies are surviving on one and a half percent profit margin. Why do it? What's the point? And, they don't, and the point is they don't need to. There are, uh, with BIM, with um, off-site manufacturing, with all sorts of supply chain issues, uh, supply chain integration, they can be much more profitable. And if they're more profitable, they'll invest more in people. Um, uh, the image will improve. It's all circular. Wouldn't you agree um, that transparency could be a great enabler in mitigating risk early on, um, big project and small projects alike, uh, in a way that you know we could actually know a little bit more of what we're doing. You know, part of the issue, you know, being an active actor in the construction, is that um, information is not always there when you need it. Um, and and, sure. and you, no, I agree. you bring a lot of risk I, 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 along I, I, with you. I agree, and a lot of inefficiency, yeah. huge inefficiency. Um, so yeah, yeah. I think transparency has a lot to offer. I think we you, we adopt out, outdated processes mm -hmm. as an industry. 
Um, we've always done it this way. Yeah. So therefore, we're very suspicious of change. And that's holding back the industry. And I think that's just true in, t in the use of technology, is in the use of new uh, procurement techniques, in the use of, um, of BIM and, 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 and digital opportunities. A lot of it is about conservatism and the conservatism of the leadership of our industry. So there was a few months ago, um, and it was really interesting conversation. You could feel an entire career condensed in a few words. So is a risk adverse leadership. Um, we've been doing this thing exactly in this way for so many years. Why should we bother changing, really? Um, and I was glad to hear that Peter thought transparency um, greatly has the opportunity to help us here. Um, and I'm pretty happy that the ODI has become, over the years, uh, one of the partners uh, of this slowly um, happening revolution in the construction industry. So we need to become more transparent, um, as lack of transparency is not just um, an issue. Sometimes it's the business case for many of the operators um, in our industry. Um, a few months ago, actually a year ago almost, um, with BRE, ODI, Constructing Excellence and G4C, and here's the acronym starting, um, we started a series of documentaries, very short uh, bullets um, of information. What we try to do is to bring some of the startups, you know, the great uh, dynamic companies that have been here fostered, uh, to talk with the big guys, the slow, massive companies in the construction industry, um, just to see if there's any opportunity for collaboration. Um, and the outcome was quite inspiring. Uh, obviously, one side of the table never heard of the other side. Um, and even without uh, pushing the conversation in any particular direction, uh, collaboration just started to happen. So I will very quickly show you what we did. And, and as a result of that, why we're here today. Uh, how can open data help the construction industry to overcome the issues that we are facing, you know, ahead of the 2025, um, you know, uh, milestone? Open data is something, is any data which an organisation chooses to share and make available to other people. They're realising that their data has a fundamental value and a power which can only be unlocked by opening it up to the general public and to public view. It's a struggle uh, for a lot of the incumbent players to even understand what it is. Why be in an industry where you're the top player, uh, but actually the average is dragged down by the quality of the people around you? Much better to be uh, in an industry where the average is higher yeah. and you can still be the top player. This has been a learning experience for me, so I, so I, I thank you both for that. Um, I, I can see value in it 100% uh, on, on, on all the streams that we've kind of discussed. If you focus and really commit to doing things with open data and big data, the benefits I think are shown to be huge, absolutely huge. Right, the reason why we're here today, we are going to talk about construction. So we had a bit of a slower start with a few videos um, and now we get into some hopefully controversial uh, opinions. So 
I work in the construction industry, a few of you guys also do. Um, and it's great to see more and more people from construction at UDI. That's kind of a, you know, optimistic view on the future. Um, you know, why bother with construction? I mean, always been there. Well, it's, it's, it's a fundamental part of our economy. You know, 90 billion pounds um, turnover and uh, 2.9 million jobs. So actually, kind of 10% of the UK population works in construction. Uh, quite, quite a few people. Um, are they going to retain their job? Um, hopefully. Um, not just positive side to construction, but also, you know, quite concerning aspect. 40% of the CO2 emissions um, in this country come from construction. So if, if we fix it, if we can fix the carbon footprint, the environmental footprint of construction, we will be in already for a low carbon economy. Um, and um, over the years, I kind of learned that construction hasn't got really the best reputation. Uh, you know, people kind of think a constructionist kind of male, pale and stale, slightly overweight, men, <laughs> muddy boots, hard hats. Um, and after 15 years uh, involved in construction, I can say that such reputation um, is well deserved. <laughs> you know, we need to change, guys. You know, we really need to change. It, it's just not happening this way. Uh, we, we like to think that we are a sustainable sector. My own personal view is that we're not. If you just take uh, population uh, forecast and projection and multiply it by the amount of CO2 we produce um, and other um, suboptimal outcome such as gentrification and very, very low profit margin, you end up with a situation which is not really that great. So construction really has to shape up. Um, and we are working, and some people around here um, are the um, main actors of this small revolution in construction. But as it is, construction is a system that needs to be fixed. Um, and one of the most uh, concerning aspects of construction, which I, I like to mention, um, is what's called performance gap. And if you don't work in construction, it's quite uh, a thrilling topic. So basically, as an industry, we say, we're going to deliver that building, it's going to use that amount of energy, produce that amount of CO2, and make everyone happy. And it's going to look great. Um, and for instance, this little uh, diagram in the middle of the screen now shows a certain amount uh, of expected energy cost. All right, so the building gets finished, everyone is happy more or less, um, and then starts to work. What's interesting is from the design parameters, there is already a 70% increase um, in energy cost from what you think you're going to do from the actual best practice buildings in use. Not only that, but from your design parameters, there's a plus 240% additional cost of the energy when in use. So basically what we're saying is that we design things to work in a certain way, and they don't. For all sorts of reasons, because people don't operate as we design them to operate, which is very disappointing. They have all this kind of free will and, and different things they do. Um, but also because systems don't work um, in a coordinated, integrated way as we plan them to do. Um, so we need basically to reduce the unpredictable outcome of in-use um, performance. Uh, and trying to reduce this performance gap. And this is one of the main reasons why um, construction as an industry is not reliable. It's not reliable in terms of uh, return on investment. We think to be able to deliver at a certain time, a certain cost, and sometimes it happens. You know, when you're on the Olympics, great. If you're not the Olympics, it might be tougher. <coughs> 
Um, so we have innovative tools, um, and what we're going to explore here to, together is a bit of forward thinking of where these tools may take us a few years down the line. Uh, many of you must have heard of BIM, Building Information Modeling. Um, if you haven't, in a nutshell, basically, is a way to build a database which holds together all relevant or as relevant as possible um, data mapping the building. So you, you build in that database the design information, um, the cost information, the environmental footprint information in one beautifully packed, very difficult to access, uh, proprietary um, data set um, and then you can export quite interesting stuff um, as you do what Autodesk tells you to do. Um, the other aspect which is really helping um, reducing the performance gap is off-site manufacturing. So we kind of know that uh, uh, slightly overweight um, uh, workers with muddy boots, of course it's not just that, um, may deliver a certain degree of difference between what we design and what actually gets built. So in order to reduce uh, the unknown elements of a construction site, we try to build as much as possible in a factory. So we have done it in the 1970s, it looked a little bit Soviet, uh, kind of dropped it for 20 years, and now it's coming back with um, a new glamour. Uh, so off-site manufacturing really is a way to control, uh, to a greater degree of accuracy, what we build, and how that built thing is going to perform. And then, and this is why here at the ODI, uh, there is the Internet of Things. Um, and it's amazing to see the figures that show up on your screen as soon as you Google IoT. Um, it will be the most amazing thing in the world, obviously. In 2008, the things um, exceeded humans uh, in connection to the Internet. Um, and the number of, of crazy statistics um, about IoT uh, can um, put us to sleep really quickly. But fundamentally, what we're talking about is data, right? Okay, so before we were designing things, I'm hoping for them to work, um, and now we are designing things in a way that would match our expected data set, and then we can measure whether the object is actually performing in the way we want. Right, so we've got this data. Um, what could we do with this? You know, how much access do we have? You know, how is our data actually ours? Right, so this is getting get a bit more interesting. You know, absolutely, yeah, fine, whatever. We, we're improving our tools. Uh, we're developing a system that can produce real-time data flow. What do we do now? And that's the interesting bit. We basically have two options. One option, uh -huh, one option is to develop open standards. You know, the, the, the really clever guy that founded this place, Tim Berners-Lee, um, once told me that they had the opportunity when the internet had to be built um, to have to develop to develop a free service in which everyone was able to produce content or a paid service. And there was a very large telecoms operator at the time that said it has to be a paid service. You know, it's a kind of telephone really, very similar to telephone. And they said, no, 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 no. This has to be free. The revenues will come from positive externalities that got nothing to do with how long you stay. Um, connected, or how much you know, data you download and upload. Um, and this was last year, the ODI summit, and it was, I was very thrilled. Uh, you basically said, if you want to turn the construction industry into an open data industry, um, you need to demonstrate that transparency can be a profit enabler. Otherwise, just forget about it. Um, if I was good enough um, to develop a financial model to demonstrate how an open 
API, open protocols, open data industry may work, uh, we might have been there already. The reality is that we are going down the line of proprietary, well-sealed packages, which holds our data sets that, towards which we have a very limited access, and then we have to negotiate how much data we can extract and how can we use the data um, after it's been extracted. So in other words, trying to be uh, more straightforward, I design a building using BIM, right? So I, I digitally build the entire thing, the windows, uh, the, the, the finishes, um, the airflow rate, uh, heat loss, all that is in the database. Um, that database belongs to a program, and the program is licensed to me. So I need to make sure that I've got enough access to my data to use the same amount of data to develop different apps or different tools, which will be the open data scenario. If that accessibility is not granted, then we might be losing an opportunity. That, that's a quick way to put it. Um, or to put it into more um, dystopian and slightly more sci-fi uh, proportions, uh, we may be creating a disruptive monopoly innovation scenario, which might not be good for us in the long term. So far, feels great. Um, the big packages we use do save uh, time and money, uh, but as the data will grow so big, to the point that the tools to manage it are not yet being developed, uh, we might need greater degree of freedom in accessing the data our industry produces. If we don't have that access, then different things might happen. Let's see what. So this disruptive novel innovation, what is it? Well, it starts by mapping the real economy. So you look at an existing economic model, let's say the construction industry, or let's say the hospitality industry, or let's say private transportation industry. So there is an econ economic model that already works. There's a demand, there's a supply. Then you create a data infrastructure. So whatever happens in that part of the economy gets mapped. So you start to track and record everything about that segment of the country's economy. And you learn everything. Well, once you've <coughs> learned everything, you can have an intermediate phase, which is a sharing economy, which is not meant to last forever. The sharing economy can only work if you have a consistent surplus in resources. Try to establish a sharing economy in a third world country or in a develop developing economy country. It can't work. It can only work here because we have a surplus. But what happens next? So now there was an economy. I mapped it. I machine learned everything out of it. Um, and I can now deliver at a fraction of a cost because technology is enabling me to replace some of the production costs with automation. All right, but then what about replacing the entire supply side with automated services? Obviously, the last step is automation. It's full automation, it's zero marginal costs. So I've learned how the industry worked. I created a model. The model is a predictive model because I've got enough big data to run some analysis on it. Um, I then replaced elements, parts of the production system, um, crowdfunding it, asking anyone to help, which is the intermediate sharing economy model. 
Um, and then I just fully automated it. And then it gets a little bit more kind of interesting. 2008, three, three great guys um, in LA set up this little thing called Airbnb. No need to use the usual stats. You know, biggest hotel in the world doesn't own a single bedroom. Um, if, we, if we look at the difference between Airbnb and any other um, hotel operator, what they've done, basically trying to reduce, consistently reduce cost in the way they allocate sales, they do their marketing, and they produce their services. Have they entirely automated their supply chain? Not quite, not there. But, but they are on the way. So as you consistently increase the amount of automation in, three, in these three key sectors of your business case, um, you just become a disruptive innovator. Someone can sell at such a low price that competitors just go. No, no way even to try competing. One year later, oh, sorry, there's a 19 there. Um, Uber comes in, and thank God for them because I was very late today. And if it wasn't for Uber, I wouldn't be here now. Uh, same thing. Um, instead of having highly skilled black cabs driver, who had to study for a long time to understand how London road network works, uh, you just provide an app, which is in real time, and fulfill the knowledge gap between any driver and a black cab driver. In the same way, Airbnb used technologies to um, improve the sale and marketing and user experience service, which otherwise will be produced by kind of costly um, and very annoying humans. Um, okay, so have they achieved full automation? Not quite. We're not quite there. But we know the amount of investment coming from everywhere into Uber because we know that in 10 years down the line, we're going to have a fully automated cars, which I would personally love because I hate driving. Um, so this disruptive monopoly innovation, um, it might sound a bit of a narrative device, but actually this is the normal trend that a globalized capitalist economy um, would develop. You reduce your costs, increase your margin. And if you've got technology on your side, an entire globalized market to sell to, it could be quite interesting. Uh, you might not have heard of Home. It's to be founded in 2019. It's not quite there. Um, and I was reading this future paper saying that Home will be the world's first super intelligent estate agent. Home, just think about your next home. And then everything will be done for you. So imagine a a way in which you may be able to buy your house in a way that is as simple as tapping like on your Facebook page. Let's imagine that it will be possible to line up the, the data required to map, as we said earlier, to map existing um, economy model to have a predictive model of land, investment, design, planning, construction, sales, and maintenance. Let's just play with it. 2019, we might not be there yet. Um, what's interesting is that in the current <coughs> business model, each of these steps is a silo. I mentioned earlier that 
um, lack of transparency is not just an issue. It's the business case for a great part of our industry. So you jump from, from the land little market into the investment little market, into the design little market, and every single time you have a, a huge bottleneck, actually, a very tiny bottleneck um, of data. You have to start from scratch. This delivers a stupidly enormous inefficiency as a system, but also guarantees many people a job. Um, as the cycle finishes, from maintenance you go back to sales and you can resell your product, or from maintenance you go back to land and you redevelop your site. Uh, now, it would be very difficult to find the data required to have an integrated, consistent, real-time updated data set to map all this stuff. Is it really that difficult? How much data do we need to profile the future customer of home super intelligent estate agent service? Well, we would need to know where he is, where he wants to be, where he normally goes. We will need to have access to his banking profile, how much money he gets, projections, pension funds, so on. Um, since we have to sell him or her a piece of design, it would be good to know whether he liked modern or old-fashioned. So we need to know something about his taste or her taste. We need to be able to uh, make sure that his or her business case goes easily through planning. And then we need to know his energy consumption so that we can have an all-encompassing offer. So when he taps like, everything is sorted out for you. Energy account, telecoms, internet, even the furniture could be integrated. On the other hand, we know that this system, uh, this, this uh, deeply intelligent system, needs to be able to automate design, off-site manufacturing, facility management, um, estate management, and all the legal bits and pieces required to sell this one-tap homes. Obviously, this is really difficult. Obviously, you know, it's really quite tricky to find all these data, unless you're these guys. If you call Google, Ooh. you are already mapped. You know, your phone, if you're using Android, or I'm sure Apple does the same, uh, little cookie exercises, knows exactly where you are. It can predict where in the year you might be going, so on and so forth. I'm not going to do the dystopian Marvel comics uh, character now. Um, but Google is a big one. That's kind of interesting, kind of easy. Um, the, the taste one was a funny one. How do I predict uh, what Ben likes as a house? Uh, well, then Ben happens to have House, the app, um, installed on his iPad. Um, and also he's got a Pinterest account. All right. So I can apply an artificial intelligence, like uh, some kind of Google re recently um, developed system that can recognize cats uh, to Ben's Pinterest account. Um, and very easily, I will have a profile of what you like, what you don't like. Um, obviously, some, some good people at Zoopla uh, have finally improved the property uh, search engine by simply mashing together some data sets. So I have a you know, pretty good um, assessment of what um, Ben might need. Uh, for himself and his family. And uh, it happens that he also had installed a Nest smart meter and a few other smart meter IoT gadgets 
um, which between now and 2019 will be very cheap and available on the market. So if we could aggregate all this data, then I know quite a bit about Ben. Uh, ben, sorry to mention you, just because I like you so much. Um, it is a narrative device. Home, the super intelligent estate agent, doesn't exist quite yet. But we know that a huge amount of data is being constantly released by our industry. Um, and there is a serious risk that when we actually achieve complete automation, it might not be for people's good. There's a, a beautiful book um, by uh, Paul Mason about, um, called Post-Capitalism. Um, and it goes back to Karl Marx's theory um, of machines. So basically, the long story in a short capsule is when you successfully replace um, humans with machines, and softer machines are particularly efficient machines, you basically can deliver stuff for free. You've got an option there. Either you control the monopoly of data, setting the price for something which hasn't got production cost, or you give it for free because it's got zero marginal cost. So there's a quite an interesting ethical uh, a question that arises from automation. Um, again, I'm a man of the construction industry. I'm trying to help my industry um, survive, basically. So what can we do? Well, I think we should work both on the demand side and supply side. Now I'm, I'm coming with the construction accidents um, message of collaboration. So we need to engage with the demand side with our clients, whether big clients or small clients, to realize that they're not data vegetables. They're not meant to be harvested every now and then without them knowing. They are data growers. We produce data. I should be aware of the amount of data, the quality of data, and the rate of data I produce because that's got value. Well, if it's got a value, I should be entitled to know what value there is and if I want to release it or not. Uh, and I might actually be very happy to release it, only if I knew what's going on. But also the supply side has to work better together. At the moment, um, we still believe that a highly competitive, macho culture of everyone against each other is going to um, help us improve our margins. Quite the opposite is the case. You know, the big guys of the soft industry are just um, deep feeding us with small packets of softer intelligence. In the meanwhile, kind of robbing uh, the data come, that comes from our industry, and sooner or later they will replace us, as we serve for the home super intelligence estate agents. Um, so, if we develop a better culture of collaboration, we might be on the path to solve not only the survival of the construction industry, but also uh, the single most important issue that we're now facing, which is global warming. And I think the first step to take, the first part of the industry that has to be activated um, towards a more collaborative, more efficient way of working, um, is the existing housing stock. Now, for, for many of you working in construction, this is absolutely obvious. Um, if you don't work in construction, uh, you might never heard of this huge elephant in the room, which is the existing housing stock. Why is that important? Well. Because we kind of committed to reduce CO2 emission by 80% by 2050. Thank God for that. Only if we could do it. 25% um, of such emission are only coming from existing housing. And at 
any given time, existing houses represent 99% of the entire housing stock. In 2050, where we're supposed to be cut our carbon emission by 80%, 80%, sorry, this is an unwilling pun, anyway, 80% of the existing housing will still be there. We're talking about 1850 houses. It's the equivalent to having a 4T in front of you as you're trying to drive you with your Tesla. This is the, house, this is the construction industry. It's basically having mammoth and dinosaurs um, free roaming in our streets. Um, okay, by the way, this is really difficult. We have been trying to tackle the housing stock. Uh, governments of different parties have tried to implement <coughs> the Green Deal, which sounded quite great at the beginning, um, until they realized they didn't quite have the right numbers to work. And still today, tackling existing housing stock is, is what we need to do as an industry. Now, can we try and wrap it together? Okay, so, if I use IoT in an open and engaging way, making sure that our industry understands the opportunity behind IoT, making sure that every single IoT startup from the ODI starts collaborating with the big guys in my industry. If we then take government targets in terms of CO2 emissions and we make them a compulsory um, key performance indicator or every single project in refurbishment, we may be able to develop a culture in which the moment you refurbish your home is the moment when you take care of your planet. Little by little. You know, you're not going to fix it in one day. But what's important is that we don't lose the evidence, the transparency that Peter Hansford was referring to that comes with a new construction project. So, refurbishing your home, get the right architects, designers, structure engineers, whatever, they understand the importance of data evidence. And as you do that, you might come up with a name like Space Up Decarb. Um, Space Up Decarb uh, is something that we're just about to launch um, in partnership with um, Open Sensors, one of the ODI startups amazingly delivering already solutions in the realm of the IoT. And it stands for increase the space, but also improving the space um, and the quality of the space of existing homes. It's only focused on existing homes. And as you do that, measure your environmental footprint. Do your best at reducing your footprint. Budgets are limited and, and sustainability is expensive. But most importantly, making sure that you don't lose the data flow, which, once aggregated, could be absolutely vital to develop the new tools of the future. So Space App Decarb, um, well, set to be the world's first crowdsourced housing open data ecosystem. It will be a website um, as the data will grow and our data set will be available to a certain degree of anonymization. We have an open API um, and we will be um, happy to share with our colleagues and partners in the industry uh, evidence that can trigger new solutions. We want to tackle transparency, a through transparency, and increase value in what the industry delivers, reducing costs because transparency is the single most important enabler of cost reduction, and the 2025 strategy um, 
was very clear about this. Uh, it will be an app which will improve um, the relationship between supply side and demand side, and the app will actually uh, take the data as the project unfolds um, without making it too complicated for our users. It will track energy and it will track CO2. Um, why are we doing all this? Because the only reason why we joined the construction industry is to try to obviously save the world. Um, and we know that crowdsourcing a global database of existing housing stock performance, it could be an interesting um, way to attempt it. Uh, the last little video I've got um, is version one of the app I just mentioned. And, and at the time, we won some funding from uh, Innovate UK, uh, and we were focusing um, on carboy builders. Um, from that, of course, working with BRE and DODI, uh, the scope expanded. Uh, but this is somehow the level of simplicity that we want to achieve, making sure that absolutely everyone uh, will be able to use our tools. A freshly refurbished home. Feels great, right? All the new materials, bright colours and crisp details. But it's a shame the building work had to be such a nightmare. All the spiralling costs and mixed messages and the mistakes on site. Why does construction always need to be so complex? Well, because it is. Every project is made of many tasks. Each task has variables. Each variable can with risks. So, in order for every task to run smoothly, you've either got to be seriously lucky or pay the premium for professional management. Or, try Project Easy. It's free. Project Easy is a project management app designed for small construction projects. Project Easy enables real-time monitoring, progress and payment transparency, improved communication and collaboration. One app, two interfaces, one for the client and one for the contractor. Project Easy will gather all the key project data, including task start, duration, predecessors, and lead times. Once the data is logged, Project Easy will create a project program and keep both client and contractor up to date with what needs doing. Real-time tracking of progress means any potential risks or delays are flagged in advance before they can become a problem. Project Easy keeps an open logbook and makes communication, budgeting, and monitoring easy. Project Easy. Nice home. Easy. Sorry, the, you know, the cheesy factor was beyond control. Um, right, so why am I here today? Well, because I need your help. You know, I need the tech industry to realize that there's a huge opportunity in the construction industry. Um, and, you know, we need to work together because we don't know how to code. You know, we build stuff. But we know that we produce a huge amount of data. Um, and if we collaborate and we keep our data set open and we keep at bay the huge monsters of uh, proprietary licensed software packages, um, we might develop something interesting. So that's it. Thank you. Thank you very much, Antonio. And on a personal level, if anyone can help Antonio in his goals and enable me to buy a house with a click on Facebook or equivalent, please do that for future. <laughs> it would save a lot of stress for a lot of us, I'm sure. Um, I'm going to open the floor up to questions. Please feel free to um, ask anything as deep and meaningful as you wish. Um, those who are male, pale, stale and overweight, you are just as welcome as the rest of us to ask questions, I'm sure. Is that right? Yes. Oh, good. Who would like to kick off? Um, if you'd like to say your name and company, you're welcome to. 
Hello, my name's Michael. I don't think this is on. Um, can you just tell me what the, the link is between Space Up, Decarb, and Easy Project? Yes. Um, the author would be the first question, uh, first answer. Um, and uh, the possibility to deliver easy to use, uh, very intuitive tools that could develop as the project develops, feeding back to the server um, important metrics from which we can start mapping how um, the hardest part of the industry to monitor actually works. There is a difference between the big flagship development um, and the small domestic market. It's almost like two different industries. You know, I remember having a conversation with Keith Clark, a really clever guy, um, and, he and he told me you know, the, the fundamental problem in the industry is that there are at least four different industries. I don't, I'm not going to bore you, but um, Shard doesn't actually sit in the same league as your home. So the Shard is quite easy to monitor. It's the best practice of anything. BIM, data set, energy mapping, anything. Um, a small Victorian house, it's very, very hard to track. Now, the problem is that we've got one shard and shitloads of Victorian houses. Um, so, what's the relationship between Space Up Decarb and Project Easy? Project Easy, or something like Project Easy, will become um, the app in the ecosystem um, of uh, real time data tools that Space Up Decarb would need to produce um, an open data platform. I've got a few questions, but. Um how are you going to deal with the problems of the entrenched interests in industry? Uh, one colleague was working on this sort of um, energy reduction approximately 25, 26 years ago. Um, he'd worked out a system of insulation which would add five grand to the cost of a house, but add 10 grand to the, pr uh, to the price and to the, va and to the value, and would knock approximately about it was about maybe a grand 1500 a year off your energy bills. And this was back in the, back in the beginning of the 1990s. Um, he tried pitching it to Barrett and he tried uh, Wimpy and all the people who were doing the large-scale mass manufacturing, and they weren't interested. The, um, he actually managed to get some results, and it was in, Ger in Germany, which is what became the pacifist standard. Um, had, um, basically, the... the, the when they were looking at the, when the Barrett and Wimpies were looking at this, looking at this, said, well, "Yeah, that's okay, but you know, we're not going to do it like that." How are you going to get? Um, how are you going to get past this uh, this particular problem? Um, it goes back to what Peter Ansel was saying earlier in the video. Um, it's a risk-adverse leadership. Not everyone in the industry is risk-adverse. It just happens that the leaders are most of the times. Um, we do things in the way we always done, and uh, we don't need to do things in a different way because there is no demand. There is no demand because there is no evidence. So if we use transparency as our bulldozer to smash through what our demand side is asking for, we might, might get a different question to answer. So um, I, I, I do believe that transparency is, is the way forward. Just, just 20 years ago, we may not have uh, had the benefit of Facebook or the internet. Um, so I think that's the way technology can help us. The other one, have you heard of the Open Building Institute? <laughs> um, 
what they're doing, they're coming up with an open source building designs that are yeah, mod, uh, modular. You can do self, uh, you can do self build, and they're using the best practices in terms of insulation and um, and, and you know, sort of reducing the energy cost, um, both in, manuf in building the house and in the long term li uh, lifespan uh, lifespan of the building. Um, they're completely compliant with the American building codes. And they're using the basically. They think they were using the. I think it was the Californian building codes because that was the most stringent um, of the regulations within America, within the U.S. Um, there's some people here that are doing the equivalent um, in in the EU, where they're. I think it's working with the German building codes, where uh, they they can produce a modular house uh, that the basic modules will cost around ten ten thousand euros. Um, this this is who uh, this is who the this is kind of beyond the scope of this application because we're not dealing with new build uh, we, we're just trying to do what we can to improve transparency in the existing stock okay but on the other hand the space update the project easy that's something that would actually fit in really nicely but at the same time you're going to be in direct competition with the other the people that are in the new um, that are you know, in the existing industry how are you going to planning and deal with dealing with that project problems. There will be a competition, um, and this is mainly a network. Um, so we don't actually we don't actually rely um, on on how quickly this service and this platform develops um, for the uh, you know well-being of our um, you know employees. But this is this is more like a awareness-raising project and comes straight out of the work we've done with BRE um, on open data in the construction industry. So. Uh, to be honest, I haven't got really a business plan right now, um, and I'm not planning to do one for this. Uh, so we, we will try to gather as much energy as possible from the ODI, BRE, Constructing Excellence, um, and see where we get. But it's, it's uh, willingly lose. Hi there, uh, Stuart Chalmers from BRE. Um, <laughs> how important do you think it is that somebody from outside the construction industry sort of starts this, if you think, if you like? I'm thinking of your examples of Uber, Uber wasn't a taxi company who thought they were going to be a better taxi company. It was somebody who was completely outside of the taxi company industry and said, we're going to change it. And same with Airbnb. It wasn't a massive hotel um, company. It was somebody outside that that said, we're going to change it. So I think what you're doing, saying that there needs to be some outside influence there, you're getting somebody who's not got something or not got sort of an ingrained um, um, sort of interest in the supply chain or in the construction supply chain. Um, do you think it's important that somebody outside the construction industry attacks it from outside, if you like? Yeah, Stuart, I, I really think we need some uh, energy from outside. I think it's absolutely essential. Um, I remember having a really interesting conversation uh, with a friend uh, who is uh, very active in sustainability. Um, and he mentioned this metaphor, the lifeboat. Existing companies and businesses are so huge and big and have so little margins and so great operating cost, they simply haven't got the resources to turn the ship before hitting the rock. On the other hand, if they can reach out and understand how a small lifeboat could be built in a completely different mindset, in a completely different business case scenario, they might be able to save as many of the passengers as possible. Um, so what I'm trying to say is that we just simply might have not time to turn existing bu uh, businesses um, for the new sharing open big data economy, uh, but we can certainly export some of our expertise <coughs> in partnership with someone 
uh, from outside. Absolutely agree with you. More an observation than a question, but this is coming. Absolutely, it's David Crew, by the way, from Turner and Townsend. But absolutely, this is coming. I mean, this, this, you've given us here a vision of the future. I think one of the one of the challenges is construction is so complex. There are multiple, multiple attributes associated with getting to an outcome in multiple, multiple sectors. And I think it, it, it actually, this is more of an observation, I think it needs the industry to recognize that and start to appreciate the value. That there's been a lot of work that's, that's been done recognizing the fact that we're probably somewhere between 30 to 50% inefficient in the industry. So if you strip out all the waste, we could do things 30% better, 50% better. This sort, of, this sort of approach and this process should give us the evidence to facilitate us doing that. But it, it's a tricky problem and that's, you know, it, it's a problem that needs to be, um, you know, shared with the technology industry. Uh, and sharing, I think, is the important thing because I think if it's protective, it, you know, your, your piece around protectionism, which is where the construction industry comes from and clients actually come from a protectionist type environment, we're not going to realize the, the rewards that will come out of it. So more an observation. I think it's absolutely fantastic. It's brilliant. It's where we're going. Uh, and you presented it in a, in a fantastic way. Such a lovely summary. That saves me a job. Um, thank you very much, Antonio. Thanks to those who have asked questions today. We'll get Antonio to put his contact details back up on the slide in a moment. If anyone would like to talk to the ODI about working with us um, on projects such as Antonio's described today, be delighted to have a chat afterwards or do drop us an email and try and tweet some pe Twitter some people afterwards as well uh, to keep in touch. You're very welcome to join us again uh, this time next week for Friday lunchtime lectures at the ODI. If you can't join us in person, there is the live stream. Follow it on Twitter. Thank you very much today. Let's uh, join me in saying thank you to Antonio. Thank you. You've been listening to a Friday lunchtime lecture brought to you by the Open Data Institute.